Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Football might be over for this season, but basketball is in full steam for both pro and college hoops. From all the latest odds, totals, player performance props, to where the next fired coach is going to land, BetOnline is the number one spot for all your sports betting needs. Head over to the website or use your mobile devices to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Just use our promo code BELIEVE to get started. And it's not just basketball. BetOnline's your source for hockey, boxing, and UFC odds. Right to the Olympic coverage. It's the best in the business. BetOnline, the fastest and easiest way to wager on all your favorite sports and play your favorite games. BetOnline, where the game starts. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to my podcast. I'm your host, Polina Edmonds. And today on the pod, I'm very excited to introduce our guest interviewee. Uh, He is the world famous coach, Frank Carroll. Frank, thank you so much for coming on my podcast today. We're so excited to have you. Well, you're most welcome. And it's fun to be here and fun to see you again. (laughs) Yeah. So I guess my first question for you is, Um, How did your career in coaching start? You were a skater at first, and then you did a number of things, went to university. Um, I saw that you actually did some acting as well, um, and then into coaching. So I'd love to hear um, your entrance into the figure skating world. Well, I skated outdoors as a kid. My father took me skating. He loved it. And we lived in a very cold, cold place, Worcester, Massachusetts, which uh, is freezing in the winter. And uh, we would go down around the corner close to my house to a park that had uh, a pond. And so I skated a lot outdoors as a kid. There was no artificial rink, but I knew I loved it and I had great fun. And uh, we moved in the city to a different location and they built an ice rink across the street from my house, if you can believe it. So then I was there every day while it was being built. And uh, when the rink opened, the manager gave me my own key. So I was lucky because I had unlimited ice time at the beginning and I had my own key and I could skate whenever I wanted to because there was no hockey then, there was no teams or anything. It was just an ice rink opened in an area but it became very busy with hockey. And so to find figure skating time eventually was difficult, but I'm going on and on. I could give this story for an hour, but I'll just say that I started skating seriously in an ice rink that was built across my house. I competed as an amateur and I was very lucky. I had the best coach in the world, Maribel Vincent Owen, who was nine times champion of the United States, a member of three Olympic teams, an Olympic bronze medalist, second to the world champion at that time, Sonia Henney. And uh, she was just a legend and the first woman sports editor of the New York Times. So, I mean, you know, she was a Radcliffe University uh, magna cum laude graduate. So, I had a great start with a great coach, and that's how I started, and I will now shut up about how I began. (laughs) No, that's amazing. I mean, um, to have somebody leading you through with so much under their own belt and so much experience um, and results of their own is incredible, Um, and I'm sure it just gave you so much perspective right from the get-go as you were pursuing your own career, Um, and then I guess... My next question off of that would be um, like, how much of her influence do you think influenced you as a coach um, as you began your coaching career? Well, Maribel wasn't just a skating coach. She was so well-educated and, you know, writing for the New York Times and being the first sports editor, she, she was a brilliant human being. So as you were learning technique and skating, you learned the, uh, different things about life, literature, you learned you know, the philosophers. She would 
uh, asked me to speak Latin to her. And I would say, I study Latin, Maribel, but it's a dead language. And she'd say, not to the girls at the Boston Latin School, we all, all spoke Latin. And so, I mean, this, this was the environment I grew up in, you know, skating with somebody who wasn't just teaching you about edges and the ice. And of course she did that brilliantly, but about life, about how to treat people, how to speak properly, how to sit down at a dining room table and which fork and knife to use for which course, you know, on uh, how to be gracious and uh, how to accept compliments, which was difficult for me. And she, she, she trained us in so many areas and, you know, people don't realize quite what Maribel was all about. It wasn't just a skating coach. She was a unique, talented and very well-educated human being. Sounds like an amazing role model on all fronts. Very well-rounded. Yes, yes. Amazing, amazing. When you uh, started coaching, did you take students of all types, or sorry, of all ages and levels, or was there a specific level that you were looking for um, at the beginning of your coaching career? My entire coaching career, I have taught everybody. Mm -hmm. Even at the end of it, when I had an Olympic champion, I had uh, little kids stumbling around. I had adult skaters who were trying to learn how to do an axle, you know, how mm-hmm. to learn how to do a camel spin. And I loved that because for me, it kept me grounded as a, as a teacher. And <clears throat> had I forgotten the tools that I learned from Maribel, unless I started with people that couldn't skate at all and were not developed in the sport, you know, it was a challenge to me intellectually that really appealed to me because it wasn't just do this, do that. It was observing their progress and their development. And uh, that interested me a lot. That's awesome. So you have a record of so many um, champions and so many skaters of such notable careers. Um, when you were working with younger skaters, what was there, um, some type of sign or something that you looked for that, uh, showed you that they had talent? Um, like, I guess, what was the, what was the one thing or few things that stood out to you, um, and made you look at a student and say, okay, this one, this one has the potential to be really good. Well, you know, I think all coaches that are really talented have insight into what somebody Mm -hmm. can do and what somebody could be. And in my lifetime, I had three people that I laid eyes on in the first few moments of observing them that I thought could be world champions. And this is the truth. The first time I saw Linda Fratiani skate, I thought this little girl could be a world champion. The first time I saw Christopher Bowman go around the ice rink, not knowing what he was doing, not knowing one foot from the other, he didn't know his left foot from his right foot. I saw the way he moved and I saw the smile on his face and the love of being out there. And I thought that little boy could be a world champion. The other one was Michelle Kwan. I hadn't seen her skate till she was in Pacific Coast Junior Ladies and Virginia Fradiani asked me if I would take a look at her because they were thinking of taking lessons for me if I had availability. And the first time I saw this girl, and this is not an exaggeration, she came down the rink in a practice session and did an axle, not just an axle, a, a delayed axle that flew and followed it into a triple toe loop combination. So it was single axle, triple toe loop. It was so high, so amazing. This was a long time ago. It was absolutely mind boggling. And I said to myself, that little girl could be a world champion. So I think coaches, if they're lucky enough, will see somebody like that. Doesn't come around very often, but I think that uh, it's not about having the world championship you know, winning that. It's not about winning the Olympics. It's about the process 
the joy of doing it? And did they in, enjoy the process? Did you contribute to the process? And uh, I think that's very important for coaches to realize that even if you don't have a world or an Olympic champion, that if you succeed in making somebody progress and achieve their goals, and that's where it's all about. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel I've been lucky, but everybody isn't that lucky. Yeah, there's, there's definitely gems in all types of levels that you can find regardless of their results down the road. Um, I like that. The journey is really important. Well, part of the package of working with um, any skater that you deal with, but, but particularly if you do find a young, talented skater is also working with the parents. Um, so in your kind of coaching career, what, what do you think about um, how involved parents need to be in um, their skaters uh, career and how like hands off should they be in terms of allowing, you know, the coach to really take control of the process uh, with, you know, the expertise? Well, I think this area may be my very worst subject to discuss because <laughs> my, <laughs> my philosophy has basically been to stay away from parents as much as possible. <laughs> but they are a very important factor in all of this. I mean, they support, they drive them, they take them to the rink, they have to earn the money for, for their skating, and they are vital in it. But they do tend to interfere with the coach's job, and that, that is really too bad because the people that I I can point out as parents that were the best were number one, Virginia Fradiani, Linda Fradiani's mother. She would go to the rink and watch her daughter skate. And Linda would come up and say, how was that? How did I do? And she would say, I don't know, Linda. I am not a skating coach. Frank is right over there. Why don't you go over and talk to him and ask him that question? And then I would have somebody like uh, Tanya Lysacek, who was Evan Lysacek's mother. She would call me twice a year when, when Evan was all the way out on the West Coast. And she'd say to him, OK, this is my biannual call. How is he doing? And I'd sit down and spend a half an hour talking to her about how he was doing and what he was trying to do. And she was very content and happy with that. And another one was Joyce Bowman, who had to live the life of Christopher Bowman, which was not easy and very, very difficult because as probably everybody knows that, you know, that Chris was a drug addict and she tried to do everything she could for that boy. And I did too, because we loved him very much, but, you know, she finally did a tough love situation but she never interfered in any decision I had to make about his skating or music or choreography. And she was a wonderful, kind lady. And so I think the best thing is when a parent finds an educated, either in skating, he doesn't have to be a college graduate, but who is educated, who has, the ability to do this job and lets him do the job and doesn't try to interfere and second guess them. You know, we can now look at the current results and the people around in skating and we can see that there are people who do interfere. And what does that do for their child? I mean, you have to not be an intelligent genius to figure out that what went wrong when you just watch it and you see it and you see the results. So I, you know, I just feel that uh, educating parents is a very important thing. And I think the PSA and US figure skating could do more about it because parents have to learn what they're in for and what they should and what they should not do. Yes, I, I think it's a really interesting culture surrounding um, parents with coaching and, and having great kids that have so much potential. I think um, the education, like you said, needs to be a little bit 
um, clearer in terms of, I guess, developing a, a really good trust uh, within the team, you know, cause it, it is a big team. It, it's, it's the coaching and the parents and the skater and whoever else works, um, with the skater. And, and I think, uh, trust is missing a lot these days, um, in terms of quick results. You know, you cannot do without one of them. They all have to be part of it. You know, I mean, if I, if I sound disparaging about parents, um, I, I think I'm voicing the um, antagonism the coaches sometimes have to go through, but I want to point out that their role is incredible and they do the behind the scenes work that you can't imagine how necessary it is and how supportive they are. And everybody I know that ever became anybody in skating, any kind of a national or world or Olympic champion had very, very supportive parents. Totally agree. Shout out to my own parents. Very supportive. <laughs> it's great. Well, you've worked with so many different athletes. Um, and, you know, as humans individually, everybody is very different in terms of what they need um, in training. So, you know, some athletes might need more training time, more repetition than others. And maybe some need more uh, like focus on mental toughness and concentration. Um, so, what was your approach to different skaters that you worked with? Um, did you try to cater to their personalities or were you more so like, this is the way it works and we're going to figure it out or like, you kind of have to get it together right now and, um, use the recipe that's been working. What was your coaching style and approach to that? Well, they all have different personalities, that's for sure. But sometimes, you know, that, that makes them unique and wonderful. If, if somebody's feisty and sometimes, you know, antagonistic, that can be great under pressure. I mean, you know, I can remember Timmy Gable, you know, when we were at a world championship and uh, Alexei Mission, the famous coach from Russia said something he didn't like and he came to me and he was in a huff and said, oh, well, that, how dare he say that or do that and I'm going to get him. Well, he did because he out free skated. <laughs> Plushenko at actually at that competition at that world championship. And, you know, he had maybe one judge who gave him first, but the thing is he deserved more. And in the present, you know, judging system with everything, he would have been first in the free, but he, uh, he had that personality. Don't mess with me. And it came out in a wonderful positive way as a competitor when the time came. But uh, everybody's different. I mean, um, Evan Lysacek was the most passionate individual I've ever met as far as, you know, everything in life. And uh, that helped him. But you had to work around that because you got your licks in. But he would go off sometimes and do something that he thought was better if he did. And I am not exaggerating if he did six long programs in a, in a day with me, and I thought this boy is going to die. He is going to pull his body apart, all right? He, I would tell him to get off and take your skates off, that's enough, okay? He would go, take the skates, go down the freeway to, to uh, Torrance, and then do another session and do another long program. But that was his personality. Would I get mad at him and scream at him? No way. I would just let it happen, but I wouldn't mention it. I would kind of pretend I didn't know what was happening, but I knew what was happening. I mean, they're all very different. And I have categories and names for each one of my skaters. And it's very true about them. Like Linda Fratiani was the best student I have ever taught. Learning how to skate and passing her test was like a game. This is game number one. Now we go on to the next game number two. It was like playing chess. And she passed her gold test from the beginning to passing the gold in three years. In three years. Now, usually that takes somebody, you know, a good eight to 10 years. But she did it in three. So she was a great student. I mean, uh, Michelle Kwan was the best all around uh, skater I've ever taught. I mean, everything, you know, 
uh, learning how to jump, learning how to spin, choreography, learning how to perform and look at the audience, learning how to be dramatic, you know, learning how to be consistent with her run-throughs and consistent under pressure. I mean, she was amazing, the best all around. Jimmy Gable, I mentioned, was the feistiest. You know, don't mess with me and I'll get out there. And he, if he was a little angry, he was better. Uh, who else? Marina Gasu. She was complicated. She had an awful lot going on in her life between parents and what she wanted to. She was, you know, basically, you know, a Japanese American and, and living in America. And her parents spoke, you know, Japanese. And they had a, a restaurant where she would sleep in the back room. And I mean, there was so much complexity, you know, that she was a very complicated girl. Gracie Gold was emotional. You know, she would uh, be wonderful, but something could happen and she'd be an emotional mess. If she didn't do well at a competition, like I remember a Four Continents uh, competition where she was so angry about the results that she threw her, you know, cell phone across the room and it smashed into the wall. And I tried to calm her down. And then I eventually said, uh, to the team doctor, okay, doctor, it's your turn. And he came in. So she was, you know, the most emotional. Um, I'm trying to think of somebody else that you might, oh, Dennis Tan. He was the sweetest, kindest human being I've ever met. He was absolutely like a little saint who had unique and wonderful talent. And that was you know, such a pleasure to be around, but you always try to make it comfortable for him and, and make him happy in a sweet way, which I tended not to be particularly sweet with my skaters. But, but you know, he was unique. I had to adapt to his personality. Uh, uh, he, he was a joy, just an absolute joy. Um, you know, I could go on and on, but I won't. But you do have to take into consideration their types of, of people, whether they're emotional, whether they're stable. Sometimes you don't have to do a lot. You just tell them what to do. And sometimes you have to really be a psychologist and especially at the time of competition to keep them on track. What do you think about uh, the mental aspect in skating in terms of you know coming to the competition and being able to put it down when you have that one chance? Because some skaters have the knack for it. They really thrive under adrenaline, uh, no matter how they are in practice. And then some are the opposite where they're perfect in practice, but you know when they come to compete, it just seems to fall apart for them. Um, do you think that that's something that we as U.S. figure skating and, and just the world in general needs to start focusing more on in terms of developing mental strength properly? Or do you think it's just something that's more natural to certain athletes? And that's why, you know, being a champion is, is really so special and so difficult. Well, I think um, it's all mental. I mean, if you're going to be a world champion or a national champion, it's mental you have to be strong enough to get out there. My favorite expression, which will be the title of my book, by the way, uh, is you and me against the world. And what I've tried to teach them is that you have to black out all of this nonsense around us. You have to be with me. You and I are doing this together. I'm here for you with you. You will listen to my voice. You will do what I have taught you to do. You are well prepared. The rest of it is all nonsense. And you can hear people clapping or calling your name or whatever. Don't hear them. It's you and me against the world because they have to be so mentally strong that they can go into this basic tunnel of concentration and ability and produce the end result because a lot of people are so scatterbrained and, oh, I'm nervous, I'm nervous. Well, when I hear I'm nervous, I'm nervous, I try to tell them, you're not nervous, you're excited. You're getting very excited about what's going to happen, which is not particularly true, but it's a way, it's a term, it's a, 
It's a tool I use to try to make them understand. Yeah, I am excited. Maybe this, this, this feeling I have isn't nerves. I'm just excited. So that works. You know, another thing I try to tell my skaters is that, you know, if they feel nervous, make it work for you. Because when you have adrenaline pumping and you are a little bit nervous or on edge, it makes you quicker, quicker twitch, stronger, faster. And I think that that, that can be advantageous to say that to them because they can think of, okay, I am nervous, but this is gonna work for me, not against me. The other thing I think is too much interference in that relationship of coach and student is not a good thing. I mean, you know, God bless US figure skating and the Olympic committee, but you know, when there's too many cooks in the kitchen, the food doesn't turn out very well. And I can tell you a story. When, when um, the boy who competed against uh, Brian Botano and was second, what's his name? Brian Orser. Brian Orser. Mm -hmm. okay. Brian Orser was at the Olympics in 1988. And I was with Christopher and Paul Wiley and Brian Botano. So the three of us were in the dressing room and the boys, one was Christopher was laying flat on a bench and Brian was doing something. And Paul Wiley was doing an exercise like a good boy because he was a good boy. And they were all very busy having fun and, and joking and talking to each other. Well, the door of the dressing room opened and in came Brian Orser with his coach, his jumping coach, his figure coach, his psychologist, his representative from Canadian figure skating, and one, oh, his therapist, uh, physical therapist, and these group of people, there had to be six or seven of them came with, with Brian who had to get ready and compete. And we all looked at each other, you know, Brian Boitano, Christopher Bowman, Paul Wiley and myself. And we, we said, we're out of here. Let's get out of here. And so we left the dressing room and we let, you know, poor Brian deal with this tribe. And I don't think that was healthy. And I don't think it is healthy. I think you need a team, yes. You need a very select team, but you don't need a tribe to have success because I think that splits the concentration and it splits this one-on-one -on -one trust, I think is so important. I, yeah, I would agree to that. I think I, Speaking from experience as a competitor, um, I know that everybody has different uh, quirks when it when you're dealing with the stress of competing. And some people are super talkative. Some people like to distract themselves by, you know, doing different odd activities before they compete. And I was very, uh, very in tune with myself and I didn't want to talk to anybody. And I remember it was always just me and my coach, David Glenn behind the scenes. And he would maybe try to say something to me, but I was very, had the horse blinders on, didn't want to talk a lot. Um, and so, yeah, I can imagine having seven people around you that are trying to talk to you. That would definitely not fly well <laughs> with me before competing. Yes. And I'll tell you something about Michelle Kwan, who was my most successful student ever we would find a cubby hole and we would find a place away, whether it's a doorway or a room that was empty or down the hall away from everybody, especially if somebody from the press was around or anything. And every time we'd walk into a venue of a competition, she'd say to me, well, where are we going? Where's the place? And that's because she knew that's what she wanted. She wanted to be away and alone and think about her skating. And we didn't talk a lot. We said a few words, but it was total concentration and focus on what was about to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's incredible. I also really liked what you said about uh, kind of changing your mindset in terms of um, feeling all the anxiety and stress of competition into saying that you're excited about competing. Um, and it, it actually flashed me to, uh, 
a lesson that I learned in college, actually, when I was studying um, the science of the brain and how it works in terms of happiness and stuff like that. But stress is actually vital to our success in a lot of ways because of that adrenaline. Um, And so the way that they had said it was when you feel stress, it's your body preparing you for the act you're about to do. It's necessary and it's, it's there to help you. Um, so it isn't until you allow stress to overtake you, uh, and crush you that it becomes a bad thing. So it's pretty much exactly what you said about stress is the excitement that's about to lead you to do the deed. (laughs) And you know, who gave me that tool. And this is very interesting was the movie star tab hunter. Now, you're too young to know who he was, but he was very famous in Hollywood, and he uh, was number one, screen, whatever, at one time. And he uh, took from Maribel, and we met years and years ago when I was a kid, and he became a huge Michelle Kwan fan, and we would talk about her skating, and he would critique her and offer me suggestions. And of course, everybody always has suggestions for you when you are a coach and you have a star. And uh, he explained to me that that's how he he worked it. How he, you know, he was a national competitor, and that that's what he thought about. He thought about that this is exciting and not nervous. And so anyway, back to movie stars. <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome. It's, it's vital, honestly, to have that type of mindset because um, stress can definitely become overwhelming if you let it. Um, but in terms of, I guess, uh, shifting over to my next question, um, consultant coaching. So a lot of skaters will switch coaches, um, you know, when they think that they're not getting the right results or, um, you know, they need a change. Um, but that can be, you know, also really stressful in terms of moving away from your home rank, you know, the, the environment that you're comfortable with, or even, you know, moving away from your family to train. Um, so do you think it's necessary to fully switch coaches in most situations or, um, do you like the aspect of consultant coaching? Um, where you just go for a week or so, work with somebody, and then you come back to your team and keep doing what you're doing. I think you're talking about disaster situations. (laughs) You can't hop around, you know, from one to the other, one place to the other, one coached, you know. I mean, you -hmm. you have to find the person you believe in, Mm -hmm. the person who can do it all for you. Now, that person who can do it all for you has got to be somebody talented and intelligent who can say, okay, I don't like the way you're moving to this music. You need to take dance lessons here and there. You need a choreographer who, like a Laurie Nickel, who, you know, is a genius to, to develop this movement and style. And, you know, I was smart enough. I, I sound like I'm blowing my own horn. <laughs> When I was up in Lake Arrowhead and I saw what Lori Nickel could do with programs with these little no talented kids and I was choreographing for Michelle Kwan and everybody else like I did all my life, I said to myself, this is better. This is better than what I do. This person has more insight to the musical and the, and the movement and the concept of doing it on ice. And that's when I hooked up with Lori Nickel because I realized it and I knew it was better. But Lori and I became very dear friends and she worked up in in Lake Arrowhead with me, but also my kids went to Toronto. You know, when I had skaters like, you know, Dennis Ten and even Evan and, and people, they went to Toronto to do their programs and to learn. And there were other people in Toronto, you know, the Annie's Edges person was there still skating at that time. And there were people that did things better than I did. But, you know, as a coach, you, you have to acknowledge what you have to offer and your strengths and know you're good or damn good. But you have to also be humble enough to realize that something is better, that they can get help in an area where perhaps it's not your strongest. Because I always felt that I was a a wonderful free skating coach, but spinning. I never thought maybe I knew it all about spinning. So there were people, you know, there was, you know, Evelyn Kramer and and there was uh, 
oh, the girl back east who was so wonderful. She's, she died, but anyway, I'm going on and on. But there were people in the United States that were better spin teachers than I was. So they took spinning lessons from them, but they didn't leave me and go off to live forever in Toronto with Lori Nichol. And that was not their purpose of going and being exposed to things. Mm -hmm. But you make your skaters, you, you make them exposed to things. You hope they'll go to the art museum. You hope that they'll look at different styles of art and color and the imagination that people had in the artwork. You want them to go to the opera and hear somebody like Maria Callas or somebody who has a voice from heaven and realize the talent they have and the way they turn their head to their gestures and uh, go to theater and see people's timing. You know, especially comedians. I mean, that sounds crazy when you were talking about drama, but comedians have to have such timing to get the audience to laugh and to have them on their side and to bring them in to what they're trying to do. So all of these things, if you want to have a fantastic skater, they, they have to love the arts. They have to be um, inquisitive about different kinds of movement in the human body. It's not just ballet, which is my favorite, but you know, you have to, you know, see the Joffrey. You have to go and see tap dancing. You have to go and see all kinds of dance going on and on and on. But what I'm saying is you wanna keep your skaters, you have to expose them to everything and you have to be open-minded because this, this feeling of no, you can't, can't do that, you can't go there. And this uh, possessiveness that some coaches have doesn't work because they think you have something to fear. They think you have something you're trying to hide from them and it doesn't work. They have to trust you. Yes, I can totally uh, vouch for that statement. Um, but yeah, I feel super fortunate for my skating career uh, with my trusted coach, David Glenn, who, you know, took me since I was so young and we got to go to the Olympics, but, um, consultant coaching with uh, coaches like Christy Ness, Sasha Fedeev, and you as well, Frank Carroll. Um, I remember my time vividly going to Palm Springs, um, as well as training at the Toyota center for a few weeks in the summer before the 2014 games. Um, when I got to skate with Evan Lysacek and Dennis 10, that was so inspiring for me, um, you know, to be on the ice with such well-known and really, really fast, strong skaters that really pushed me and motivated me, um, in ways that I wasn't quite getting, um, in San Jose where I trained. And so to take those experiences and apply them when I came home again, um, it, it really did the trick for me as an athlete and, um, yeah, just, just working all together was an amazing experience and, um, to have everybody by my side without any friction was the best part of that process. And, you know, there's a saying about exactly what you were describing and it is, Good skating breathes good skating. So when you're in an environment, then somebody's better than you and somebody is wonderful, you learn from it. And it's like a process of osmosis. It gets into your cells and into your body and you learn just by being there. But if you are somebody in some little town somewhere in uh, Tombstone, California, <laughs> You have to develop that from the scratch, but you can't be afraid to develop it. You have to develop it so that you do have people that uh, can show other people and who are role models in what we're trying to do. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think you can build your own environment um, and your own team however you want, um, but you have to be confident enough to execute it properly. Um, so yeah, it's great. Uh, well, Frank, politics are always part of sports, um, especially in skating, since judging is subjective. Um, so what was your strategy as a coach for your students throughout all of the years, um, just navigating that side of figure skating? Well, I have certainly had my shares of disappointment with it. I mean, I 
certainly felt that Linda Fradiani should have won the Olympic Games. And I felt that that was worked out politically before it even started. But, you know, that's old hash. That's a long time ago. It's, it, to me, it's not even almost uh, worth talking about. But the, the politics of what's going on now with the ISU and this drugging thing is just driving me totally insane. Because number one, the Russians got caught cheating in the Olympics in Utah, in Salt Lake City with the pairs, right? Mm -hmm. So what did they get? They got a slap in the hand and another gold medal for the Canadians. And nothing happened. Not, you know, the girl from uh, France, who was the one, the scapegoat who got caught, she was, you know, her judging credentials were taken away for two years and she's back, you know, judging right now. So big deal. Okay, and then when you go to the Sochi Olympics where I was and watched that girl skate her brains out who had never done it in her whole life, oh, surprise. And then we find out that the Russians were slipping all of the samples through a little door in the back of the room in the uh, drugging place and they got caught, you know, completely interfering with the, the drugging. A process that was going completely. So what did they get? Oh, they were banned. Russia is banned. So they can't compete anymore. So they they compete as the ROC, right? The and what does that stand? Russian Olympic Committee, but not the country. It's not Russia, it's the Russian Olympic Committee. So wasn't that a huge, huge uh terrible thing to happen to poor Russia when they get caught. It was worse than a slap in the hand. It was a, you know, a slap on your pinky and they got away with it. And then, then we find out that this girl was found uh, doping before the Olympics started in, in uh, Korea, before it started. And she was allowed to get out there and compete for, for the ROC, which is Russia. Right. So she was allowed to compete, having been, you know, discovered, you know, as a drug person. So, I mean, you know, she may be innocent. She's sweet and wonderful. I love her skating. I like watching her. But when does this stop? And what politically is behind this to keep this machinery of cheating that's going on within the Russian system? What is going on? Well, I think I know, and I'm not saying that it's true, but I think the Russians and the Russian Olympic Committee give a great deal of money to the ISU. I think they support them very much. I think they have influential members on the different committees of the ISU who are from Russia. And they, I think they have a lot of political clout backed by finances. So where is it gonna go from here? Well, of course the war broke out and so they're not allowed to do anything, but that isn't really addressing the political system that they adhered to and the cheating within the drugging system. This is a whole different thing that happened. And it's not just figure skating and the ISU, it's all sports. So I'm, what I'm saying is, there's a lot of political things that go on in skating. When I had to compete against uh, Carlo Fassi's, you know, um, students at the Olympics and, and Linda Fradiani when she lost, I mean, Carlo was on the phone with every judge, every team leader, everybody he knew in Europe. And he was the European figure skating champion. And so he had friends and high places. And he wanted to teach Linda Fradiani at that Olympics. And I said, no, because he had helped her in figures. Being the person I am, I felt like it would be good. Well, it wasn't good. It backfired in my face. One of the lessons I've learned. But anyway, <laughs> I'm rambling on and on in here. You've got to stop me, Polina. <laughs> no, it's great. It's so much insight. Um, you know, it's interesting to hear all these stories. 
But yeah, I mean, it is, it is crazy to kind of see the landscape and, and taking it back from, like you said, um, from Salt Lake to Sochi to where we are now there, there's been tiny steps made and made and made and made and made without any real pushback. And now here we are. Um, but you know, next question, what do you think about what they're talking about this age change, um, to kind of compensate for all of the scandal that's been happening? Do you think that's going to help the problem at all? Or do you see that more as just a band-aid for, um, addressing the root issues with the cheating scandals? Well, I think that raising the age minimum is not a bad thing because it should be the ladies, you know, figure skating championship of the world instead of uh, what it's thought of. Mm -hmm. But what's going to happen to all those girls in Russia that will now have to stay as thin as a rail and be uh, forced into being cadaverous? So are we going to have dead bodies around because they are adhering to what the expectations are of what they should weigh and look like? It's fine to say, okay, raise the, the age to 18 right? Okay, that's great. But the girls have to be fit. We know that terribly fit. And you know, and I know how difficult it is when a girl's body changes to have that same ability to rotate like a bat out of hell. You know, I mean, you have to be fit and you have to be thin and you can call it anything you want, but them's the facts, ma'am. You have to be cadaverous to really do those quad jumps when you get to be a certain age. So what are they going to do those Russian girls? Are we forcing them to be essentially, you know, uh, ruined for life? Because you know, they'll give them something, you know, they'll do some method to keep them thin. And uh, when you look at those Russian girls compared to everybody else in the world, the ones that are doing well, you can see how amazingly thin they are, amazingly thin. And that's why they can do the job. But I think it takes a lot of uh, observation and control to keep them that way. So sure, you can raise the age and I think that would be a benefit. But you know, I fear for the young girls in Russia what that will do to their bodies. Very true. Uh, it's a big question mark right now and it, it doesn't seem to be looking good, so. Time will tell, but um, with that current push in technical, like you're saying, um, you know, women's skating has really changed in the last eight years with prioritizing um, the jumping. Um, And with that, the quality of skating all around has really started suffering. Um, What are your thoughts on the importance of skating quality in terms of the whole package, as well as jump quality in terms of, you know, edges and landing with flow and all of that? Well, I think we're headed for disaster and I don't think we're headed for it. We are in disaster. I mean, if you look at those programs and you uh, observe them and you see the best, you say, oh, that's nice. You know, oh, that was nice. She, she kind of, she acknowledged the music, right? But where is the emotional performance of a Michelle Kwan doing Salome or doing East of Eden, uh, where are the tears being shed because they're so emotionally moved? There aren't any tears being shed because nobody is emotionally moved by anybody's performance anymore. Actually, the boys can do that a little better than the girls right now. But I mean, girls figure skating used to be such an amazing thing to watch, such a thing of beauty, such a, uh, you know, not only graceful, but musical and, and uh, athletic, but, but still, um, you know, totally, I'm, I'm missing the word, but, you know, such a pleasure to experience. Now, when you watch it, is it a pleasure to experience? Well, if you love, you know, quad jumps, yes. If, If your idea of figure skating is quad jumps, then yes, you're going to be very happy. But for someone like me, you know, who loves dance and loves music and loves, you know, um, going to symphony, it's not because I don't see much there that really is in 
the spiritual or, you know, artistic world, I don't. And I just think like the second mark uh, is so low for what they give, you know, on the scoring system, you know, the program component scores don't reflect anything. You know, if you're in the last group, you start with a eight or you start with a seven. Well, you know, if you're doing it fairly, then when you start at the beginning and they're dreadful skaters, they should be getting a three or a two. And as it progresses and somebody, if somebody's in the second group and they're fantastic, then they should get a nine. Do you think that's ever gonna happen? I don't think it's ever gonna happen. And then when you get to the last group and we have our last uh, six skaters out there, it starts with a nine or an eight, right? And some of them are pretty bloody horrible and they should be getting sixes but it doesn't happen. So all of that GOE is right out the window. You know, we can have judges schools, we can send people out to teach them. We can have a Joe Inman who was a master at this, but no one's going to judge it that way. You know, you can lecture and lecture and lecture, but no one is going to do it. No one's brave enough to step out and say, okay, I don't care whether she's been a world champion. She was terrible today and she's going to get a 7.3. Well, it's not gonna happen. But is that really the way we want figure skating to be judged? Is that what we want? Well, I want beautiful artistic skating with lovely edges. I wanna see spirals that are gorgeous. I wanna see Ina Bowers. I wanna see spread eagles. I wanna see a movement to the music that's going to make you get emotional, you know, bring tears to your eyes. But I don't want you to sit there in the audience and say, okay, so what? So what, that was nice. And then sit there for 10 minutes while they're trying to figure out the judges and you wish to heck you had brought either a sandwich or maybe a flask to have a drink because you're bored out of your, out of your mind. But that's what's happening in figure skating. I don't like the direction it's going. I don't like the emphasis on just, you know, difficulty. And, um, you know, it's, it's like watch the boys this year at the Worlds, not, not the Olympics, the Worlds, you know. And uh, we had the boy from Phoenix who skated so well. And he's such a nice young man. I'm trying to get his name out, but I can't get it out but he skated a perfect program with two quad jumps. And I think he came fifth or something. And Camden, yes. Yeah, Camden. He, Camden Polkanen. And you know, he's not good all the time. We know that, but he's a handsome boy. He has a nice line and style. He has nice costumes. And he went out there and did it. But did he get the credit he deserved? No, he didn't. You know, he should have been higher. And uh, I think that's, okay, I'm going on and on about the judging system, but do I like it? No, I don't like it. I don't think credit is being given to the artistic part of our sport. We're losing it. I don't think jumping up and doing four turns in the air is what figure skating is all about. Then call it figure jumping, but don't call it figure skating. This is true. It, do you think there's a way to improve that within this judging system? Or do you think we're too far gone at this point and there just needs to be a major rehaul? Well, I think that, uh, of course, the judging system was all screwed up. You know, basically, thanks to somebody who is a friend, you know, Cinquanta from Italy changed the judging system because of a threat from the International Olympic Committee. But I think that, yeah, there is a way, uh, you know, if you're giving a score of, oh, say, I'm just going to make up a number in my head, um, 8.5 for a triple axle, a triple toe, a quad toe combination, and you give a spin of a difficulty of, you know, whatever, just on the GOE, and, and it's not even close to being even, the spins should be given 
a higher difficulty, especially if somebody does them very, very well. If somebody does a knockout drag out combination spin, it should not be given the same difficulty by everybody. And the thing about uh, the moves, I mean, you know, spirals and, and, and moves in, that are, you know, transitions should be given marks. And, and things should be incorporated in the score other than just jumping, jumping, jumping and adding up, oh, he did this, this and this, putting beans in a jar to see who has the most beans. I mean, it's not that. I don't think figure skating is counting beans. I think that, that if you're going to count beans, start giving spins more important. Start giving connecting moves more important. Like if somebody does a knockout, drag out, gorgeous step sequence, then rewarded, it should be through the roof, but not just the same as everybody else who did a level four. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's all one-sided. The jumps are getting all the difficulty and the other things that should be measured. I mean, when do you ever see a layback like uh, Dorothy Hamill? When do you ever see a spin like Lucinda Rue? Right? What did Lucinda Rue get for her spins? You know, I mean, and that, and that could even be the old judging system. I don't know. But I don't think these things that are extraordinary, other than jumping, are being rewarded. And that's why our skating is, you know, basically losing interest. Because people don't enjoy it. They don't enjoy sitting there for five minutes while the, the marks come up after somebody who's been a dreadful skater. If somebody's a dreadful skater and you have to sit five minutes for their marks to come up, what are you going to do? Blow your nose and go to the bathroom. <laughs> it's true. You know, there's just, there's a, there's a lot going on and there's a lot that needs to be fixed and changed. Um, and so hopefully people start standing up for the integrity of what skating is and used to be um, and start preserving those qualities uh, because it has, it has been changing quite a bit in the last decade. Okay, now I've got a question for you. Okay, love it. What would, what would you do with the judging system? Uh, you know, very similarly, I do think that components um, need to be valued a lot more, but I don't think that we have clarity in terms of what they look for for components because right now there's just, you know, we have a skating skills mark, but what does that mean? Um, it seems like they're judging skating skills for your technical ability. So really... The skating skills are just part of the technical score. If you can do a quad, you're getting nines for skating skills, but we actually need to be looking at, you know, edge quality and how many turns, how many complicated and actually difficult, um, edge turns are you doing variety of, you know, toe steps, all these different factors, I think contribute to, or should be contributing to the component score but I don't think that that's the way that judging is working right now. And it doesn't seem like there are specific enough criteria um, for that. And uh, I, I think that having judges specifically look at the technical score and have them only do the GOEs for jumps, as well as judges that only look at the skating quality in terms of the choreography and the, the style and um the steps, you know, spirals, like you were saying, I think maybe having it separate could be more helpful so that they're not bombarded with so much information. Um, but ultimately honesty in judging, like you were saying, if there's a skater in the second group that skates amazing, they should be earning the points that people in the last group earn. Um, it, it shouldn't be dependent on what group you skate in or what country you skate for, um, you know, or what coach you have, like it should really be about the skating. And I think that at this point, we're not we're just not there. And also, you know, I agree. Absolutely. Everything you said is beautiful and you expressed it very well. You should write that down and do an article on it. <laughs> Thank you. Let me, let me tell you something. How difficult it is it to look at spins and nobody and know somebody's spinning faster than other people. Somebody can really rotate. That's not hard. How difficult it is, is it to look at a spin and know that that has extraordinary line and body position, turnout and stretch of the free leg in a layback spin who can really turn their free leg out, you know, parallel to the ice with a beautiful free leg, level shoulders and 
spin like a top while they're changing from one position to the other, rather than just change, 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 everybody gets the same score, which is ridiculous. How difficult is it to look at steps and know that somebody is doing these turns beautifully with deep edges, not just hitting the edge, like on say, uh, you know, uh, a counter rock or counter or something, but who does the edge deep and beautiful besides just hitting it? You know, who can do these edges with speed and balance and gorgeous body line? You know, as, as far as body line is concerned, I think that's kind of thrown out the window. It seems like people don't even take that into consideration. And after all, we are supposed to look like dancers on the ice. And if you don't have body line, I think you should hang up your skates. It's true. You know, Frank, I really agree in terms of aesthetics. I think it's very, very important in, in spinning and in spirals and landing positions and in, in jump technique on takeoffs. You know, all of it comes down to a T of um, how beautiful is the work that you're doing and how lovely does it look on the ice as you're changing position. You know, it all counts. And unfortunately, that has really changed. Um, and there is a lot of very unaesthetic positioning. Um, and I've, I've talked to people about it. I've talked to skaters um, and it's just not part of the learning processes anymore. It's not part of the technique that's valued. It's all about the points. Like you were saying, um, you know, we have, we have a lot of girls doing the hair cutter positions, which is the transition between, you know, the layback and the Beelman. And, and it's completely not a hair cutter like we used to see where it's the beautiful arch of the back and, you know, your head is more at your hip level. Now it's just standing upright and we bring our blade to our head in a very, very like unesthetic position, but it's not valued anymore. It's not part of the criteria. So nobody cares. And you know something, I, who knows what a real cross foot spin is? I mean, if you ask somebody, even a judge, what is really a cross foot spin? What do you have to do to do a genuine cross foot spin? They probably can't tell you that your toes must be touching and your heels apart, that one blade turns on the outside backward edge and one blade turns on the forward outer edge. And if you don't hit that position with your feet and you're unable to turn your toes in that much and your heels out and stand up and get your hips under, it's not a cross foot spin and you shouldn't be getting credit for a difficult position because it's not it's just garbage it's true I said too much <laughs> no i love it you know it's 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 honesty in all practicality of it uh, and it's something that it's just unfortunately not valued right now and i think we need more voices to kind of come out and say that this is this is the criteria that we need to preserve because this is the beauty of skating um and just trying to do a million positions that are really quite ugly to watch on the ice. Um, it, sh it shouldn't be earning the points, like you said. Um, but if all the champions are doing it right now and they're getting rewarded for it, then all of the young kids who are growing up in skating have no motivation or, um, you know, no example to watch, to learn properly. Right. No, that's right. I mean, it's, it's the, Judging has to be the ability to recognize difficulty and to see it and reward it and know how to give the marks. It, in, that's a whole different thing. That's not my area of expertise, but I think it really has mm -hmm. to be you know, adjusted and learned properly. Yeah, definitely. Well, Frank, my last question for you um, on this episode is, what was your favorite moment in skating throughout your coaching career? that you can recall or multiple, if you don't want to narrow it down to one. <laughs> you won't believe what it is. I get emotional even thinking about it. The, one of the greatest moments in my entire career was having a young man called Robert Taylor win National Novice. Now, Robert was a very tall, lanky boy, not particularly graceful or talented, but he was a good boy and he listened and tried very hard. He uh, had approached any number of 
very well-known teachers in the Southern California area to teach him. They all said no, they all turned him down. When he skated, when I got him, he did an axle that slid and stopped and he landed behind where he took off. So he had no feeling whatsoever of forward movement on an axle. And I mean, I'm just, I point that out as, as just an example of his ability. This boy listened, he tried very hard, he did what he was told, he trained well, and his figures were very fine. Although he won National Novice, he was stopped doing his fifth test. They didn't let him finish because one judge had him below minimum. And, and that was ludicrous because his fifth test was gorgeous. But it was a judge who, whatever. He got to the Nationals by placing in the Pacific Coast and out of the blue, he won and became a national champion. And I just love that because it was somebody that nobody believed in. Nobody believed he could do this. And, you know, it was just, oh, there's Robert. Robert is, you know, there. And, and he wasn't somebody that stood out. When you went to a rink, you wouldn't look at him and say, wow, he's, he's really talented or he's really good. He was a plugger. He was somebody who stayed in there and worked hard and tried and did it again and again and again and did his programs with discipline. He went to nationals and he won. And that made me so happy. I would say that's the number one happiest event of my life. And then Evan winning Olympics. Yes. But I mean, you know, I, Michelle Kwan, all of that, you know, it's very hard for me to pick one. But of all of them, I'd say it was Robert Taylor. That's amazing. Um, and it, it just, it really goes to show what hard work and um, dedication and discipline can do, um, regardless of, you know, how much talent you have. Um, you know, there's a lot of talented people that just can't get it together. <laughs> but in terms of hard workers and, and ethics in terms of work ethic, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. And he's a very dear friend to this day. <laughs> That's amazing. All right. Well, Frank, thank you so much for coming on my podcast today and speaking with me. Um, you shared so much great insight that I know everybody is just going to really enjoy hearing. So thank you so much. Okay. You're most welcome, dear. You, you stay well. Say hello to your mom and dad. <laughs> I will. Thanks, Frank. Okay. Bye. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.